Tamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapa, that is Wednesday, and it's the last day of August for this year. Ko Nathan Rarariaho. Coming up, it's magpie swooping season in Australia. We're going to get magpie avoidance tactics from Pam Corkery, who's in Brisbane. Also, an Iraqi cleric apologises for violence in Baghdad, which has killed more than 20 people. The UN is calling it a monsoon on steroids. Pakistan devastated by floods. And despite a warning from the Prime Minister not to travel to Ukraine, charity worker and former Mayor of Tauranga, Tendri Powell, calls his volunteers to help. Ex-military, ex-police, ex-ambulance and fire service, registered nurses and doctors, people that have an ability to operate and have operated in an uncomfortable environment. Maria, welcome to First Up. Yep, final day of August for this year. I'm Nathan Rarere. We have plenty to talk about on the show today and also want to get your thoughts too uh, about um, volunteering in dangerous situations. But we start here in Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan appealing for international support for what is being described by the UN as a monsoon on steroids. More than 1,000 people have been killed in floods, which have covered roughly one quarter of the country. The BBC's Dan Johnson has this report. So much of Sindh province now lies underwater after weeks of torrential monsoon rain. A third of the country's been affected and so many people here have lost absolutely everything. Our houses were destroyed by rains and floods. Everything sank in water. We couldn't save our households except for a few things. Now we're sitting here in the open. The rainwater came, our houses got submerged, so we're building these makeshift tents next to the road. We are very poor. For God's sake, help us. Give us something to eat. It's estimated 33 million Pakistanis, one in seven of the population, have been touched by this unprecedented flooding that's caused $10 billion of damage to the country's infrastructure. So Pakistan's appealing for further international assistance, and the UN's announced an enormous package of immediate aid. Pakistan is awash in suffering. The Pakistani people are facing a monsoon on steroids, but the scale of needs is rising like the floodwaters, and it requires the world's collective and prioritised attention. The United Nations is issuing a flash of peel for 160 million US dollars to support the response led by the government of Pakistan. Aid is arriving, but many people are only just starting to assess the damage and the death tolls rising too. Now more than 1,100. Many areas are still cut off, many people haven't had help. There is a flash flood in our area. We have no food, nobody helps us. We don't know to whom we have to go to make a request for help. We are poor people. Some people get, while some people didn't receive the food. The rain may have stopped for now, but the floodwaters keep moving, putting more homes at risk. The damage to crops and livelihoods here means the suffering of this country and its people will only get worse. And we're going to cross to Pakistan later in the programme to talk with our correspondent in Karachi. Uh, we'll uh, go to the Middle East now, where I'm joined uh, from Doha by our correspondent, Alex Beard. Morena, Alex. Morena, Nathan. An interesting story coming out here of Baghdad, that, that fighting has subsided mm. because uh, prominent clerics come out and told the supporters to calm down. What's the latest there? Yes, and 
Yeah, this is a story in Iraq that we've been talking about for a while, but it really took a pretty sharp turn um, in the last 24, 48 hours. Basically, we've been talking about this Shia cleric in Iraq called Muqtada al-Sadr. And um, as well as being a cleric, he has the support of a huge number of people and has the support of a majority of uh, politicians in parliament. Now, um, after elections in October, Iraq has struggled to form a new government. And basically, Muqtada al-Sadr said, well, you know what? I'm just going to step out of politics. Now, this caused his supporters to riot, to riot in the streets of Baghdad. We're seeing fires, uh, that sort of thing. Security forces got involved. More than 20 people were killed. And then Muqtada al-Sadr said, well, you know, if security forces keep using force against my supporters, I'm going to go on hunger strike. So then he went on hunger strike. Things have calmed down a little bit, but this just really shows how fever pitch things have got in Iraq, where this country cannot form a government. And there are underlying issues here with its constitution and that sort of thing as well. But really what this country needs is some stability so that it can really crack on with, with, with tackling the things that matter, such as um, the standard of living in Iraq. Mm. Uh, let, let's go to Al- Algeria. Why was the French president there? Yeah, so um, French President Emmanuel Macron uh, decided to do a three-day visit uh, last week to Algeria. Now, this comes on the back of last year where uh, Macron made some, he made some unusual suggestions. He said that um, Algeria wouldn't have a concept of nationhood if it wasn't for France. You can imagine being a former French colony that went down like a lump of lead in Algeria, and that caused things to be uh, pretty hot between the two nations. Now, uh, I think Emmanuel Macron headed to Algeria to sort of have a bit of a reset to relations. Things were generally pretty good. He made a big point while he was there, though, of, of saying that there are anti-French actors trying to ch- turn Algeria against France. He pointed the finger at, at Turkey, at Russia, at China. Turkey turned around and said, hey, don't blame us for your failed colonial project. But I think it's also really important uh, to look here at the fact that we're, we're rapidly approaching winter uh, in, in the northern hemisphere. And uh, as we've always, we've been hearing a lot recently, there's a massive issue in Europe with gas, um, gas for heating, gas for electricity because of the war in Ukraine. And I would say, um, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but that a massive motivation behind this visit was an attempt to get Algerian gas to fill that void that's been left by Russia stepping out of the market. But it looks like things um, between Algeria and France are on the up. Algeria, the president there, seemed pretty happy with how things are gone. So it'll be interesting to see how things progress from here on in. Yeah, well, let's stay uh, on the African continent there. There's still Middle Eastern news. Libya, uh, more than 30 people killed there in uh, Tripoli. What what were those clashes about? Yeah, we've really had a pretty fractious time in in North Africa and the Middle East in the last week. So basically, there's been a pre-existing issue in Libya um, just over two years ago. There was a um, the end, essentially, of a prolonged civil war that killed thousands of people. In the last two years, there's been this rather tenuous ceasefire. The problem is in Libya is that there's basically two opposing governments, two opposing parliaments. There's one based in the capital, Tripoli, which is generally recognised internationally by the UN as being the government. But then in the east of the country, there's also an opposing legislative house with another prime minister and things between these two sides have been okay for the last two years there have been an agreement that there would be elections to form one parliament one government but those fell through in December it was supposed to happen then it still hasn't happened that's really what needs to happen here but things um, spilt over kind of like how they have in Iraq more than 30 people killed when um, 
these two opposing political sides were basically jostling for control of Tripoli, rival militias, really. There was a threat that this could spill over and reignite the civil war. That hasn't happened at this point, but it's a pretty tense situation. And what this country needs, like Iraq, is another round of elections to really have some certainty for the people. But until then, another tenuous uh, ceasefire, which will hopefully not spill over into conflict again. Yeah, let's hope so. Alex, thank you very much for your time. That's Alex Baird out of Doha. And it's 13 past five uh, here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. And I'm keen for your feedback here. So uh, they're calling for help in Iraq for, uh, sorry, in, in Ukraine for volunteers. If you had the skills to help, would you? If you had the skills and the time to help, would you? 2101 or email us first up at rnz.co.nz. Uh, a lot is happening across the ditch in Australia. Uh, big news yesterday of a 30-year murder mystery coming to an end with a guilty verdict. Joining us now from Brisbane is our correspondent, Paul, uh, Pam, Pam Corkery. Why did I go with Paul? Pam, why did I go Paul? What was happening there? I don't, I don't know what was going there. I mean, I've given up trying to understand you a long time ago. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Now, this is is very interesting. I started listening to this podcast, I think, last year. The the Teacher's Pet, it was called. Ugh, horrible story. But it came to an end yesterday. Chris Dawson found guilty of murder uh, 30 years ago for killing his wife. Tell us the background to this. Well, it was actually 40 years ago, but the police didn't take any notice of it till 30 years ago because ah. Ms. Mrs. Dawson had disappeared um, and they just said, oh, it's a wife who has left her husband and two children in their eyes. And so it was 30 years they're hanging on to, but we all know it was 40 years because she left in 1882. She didn't leave, she was killed. So yesterday was a live stream test of patience kind of event for Australians listening or watching. The judge took five hours to read out the rationale behind his verdict um, because it's a big deal to convince to convict someone for murder when the body is never found. Now, I've never listened to the podcast, but it is getting big ups for its part in, you know, the guilty verdict. It's um, I, I found it very similar to you know, it's quite Nancy Drew with a lot of these podcasts. There, sometimes I'm like, I'm I'm sick of hearing about murders all the time, but this one was a, a, a just a fascinating story and really really well presented there by uh, by the podcaster. So look, I'm, I'm pleased at least that, that some justice has come there. Um, hey, um, now this was an interesting pic. I saw a picture the other day of this t- <laughs> of this tiny little man uh, next to a large man, and the large man is Shaquille O'Neal, so he makes everyone look tiny, but the tiniest little man who looked like he was taking a ring back to a volcano was the Prime Minister Albanese, but people aren't happy about that. What's all the fuss about it? Well, he's defended his meet with Shaquille O'Neal, who's offered to promote next year's Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. Um, And critics have said, no, it's got nothing to do with him. He's American. He has nothing to do with it. And Albo's told them to chill out. Now, Shaq was in Australia to do ads for gambling, I might add. He does them here. And while here, he contacted the PM and said, I'm all about your Indigenous Voice enshrined for the Australian Parliament deal. They met, got their photos taken, as you say, ridiculous photos, and Shaquille says he'll film a supportive clip. Now, the the criticism has come, you know, from one senator in particular. She said, this is an insult to Indigenous Australians. He's putting his nose into business that he has nothing to do with him. This is about Shaq. He doesn't understand what's going in the country, but 
Albo says the fact that he started people talking about it who may never have heard about the referendum until now is a good thing. I'll engage with anyone, anywhere, anytime, and we'll do everything we can to raise the profile of this referendum. And I kind of get where they're both coming from. Yeah, I think, I mean, look, I, I, I know he's obviously he's not Indigenous, he's African-American, but he's a huge hero to uh, many people in the population, including uh, a lot of Indigenous, young, younger people as well. So uh, it's Absolutely. an interesting one. Absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, with, with elbow on this one. Yeah, that, this is an interesting one. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm from Hawke's Bay, so I'm all about the magpies. But tell me this, it's magpie swooping season. What's the official advice for how you there in Australia are to avoid being attacked and swooped by magpies? So we've got... We've got three months ahead. There are billboards everywhere telling us um, to beware or even to phone and dob them in because councils will relocate them. Because of, you know, um, environmental erosion, we've got lots of magpies and everywhere has shifted into the city. It all used to be snakes, guanas and cats, but now they're in the city and in really high traffic areas. I mean, they're looking after their new babies that have been born. If you come within 100 metres of them, they'll just protect. Um, The weird part about them, because I was, have you ever been strafed by one? I have actually. Uh, our neighbour in front of us in Hastings had one and it bit me just under the eye. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Well, it's really frightening because they swoop down and then they can reverse really quickly, turn yeah. around. Yeah, but they can remember human faces, which worries me for this year. Because it's one of the streets I go down. They're really smart. They have excellent memories. But what they were being told, yeah, back to the advice is if you're on a bike, get off and walk because it looks like you're too busy trying to kill them if you're going too fast. Um, wear sunglasses, cover your head, um, and just be aware. But the other thing is that translocation is an option. Just ship them out of the neighbourhood. Not now, neighbourhood, darling. Mm. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> I, I love budget airlines are always, they sit around and go, oh, what's the name we can come up with? I know, Bonza. See, the new, the new plane for budget airline, Bonza, has been given a very Aussie name. Shazza. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't get any more Aussie than that. And you know, everyone's pleased. The airline's been inundated with posts from Sharon's. One woman said, "I think this might be the proudest moment of my life." She was a Sharon. <laughs> but you know, sometimes I think this is just imaginary now. Like when I lived in Australia in the eighties, yes, Shazza, Dazza, blah blah blah, and they'll still never call you by your correct name. I'm Pamo, things like that. But. Most people I know don't talk like that anymore. They just keep making movies of Australians who talk like that. I do think it's a wee bit out of time. I mean, most people I know are talking about their mortgages and counsellors. Yeah, well, the next plane (laughs) will probably be called Porm. Uh, thank you very much. Paul Corcoran. <laughs> Love your work. <laughs> thank you. She's avoiding magpies, but uh, she's uh, has time for us. That's Pam Corkery out of Brisbane. And would you look at that? It's 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarity, and you're listening to First Up here at RNZ National coming up. A New Zealander volunteering in Ukraine is looking for people who can help him out in the war zone. And we hear the latest about the devastating floods as we cross live to Pakistan. This week on Trade Me, Sir John Key's old house is up for sale. Uh, the Parnell Mansion, by the way, sold for $24 million uh, last time, so good luck with the mortgage repayments on that one. Also up for grabs is a glorious Chevy Impala, which would look totally out of place cruising the streets of Parnell. Hard to fit down there as well. But first, producer Jeremy Parkinson talks with Trade Me's Melly Sylvester about Tupperware. 
as Kiwis rush to the site to try and snag a bargain. They sure are. Since Tupperware announced they were closing the lid on their operations, thousands and thousands of Kiwis jumped on Trade Me because they really wanted to make sure that they weren't going to miss out on those trusted food storage containers. So they announced it on Wednesday. And to put that into perspective, in the few days following, we saw 10,000 searches for Tupperware, making it one of the most trending items on Trade Me. And now there's about a 1,000 listings because thrifty Kiwis are trying to make a few bucks out of it. But what is really interesting is that it's actually not the first time we've seen demand surge for sort of soon-to-be-discontinued items on Trade Me because you might remember in 2008 when Pascals decided they were no longer going to be making a whole range of their loved lollies like sparkles and snifters and tangy fruits, we saw these lollies sell for hundreds and hundreds of dollars on Trade Me. We saw 12 pots of tangy fruit sell for 100 bucks and 20 bags of snifters sell for 170 So not the first time I've seen it and probably not the last. And Tupperware, I mean, it, it's not just, I mean, it's not just iconic, but it's, uh, they've got this lifetime guarantee thing and it's never been cheap. But what it is, it's iconic and it, it's long lasting and there, there is a lot of it at the moment on Trade Me and the prices aren't cheap. No, they're not cheap, which is the most fascinating thing about it, I think. And I think that there obviously is a place for, you know, really durable, reusable items like this in society. So Tupperware has been one of those brands that has really stood the test of time and is a really trusted brand. So it's no wonder that Kiwis love it so much. There's a heck of a lot of it on Trade Me at the moment, so get in there while you still can. Although, as I said, you still will be able to buy Tupperware online, just like you can buy most things. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, for some of those classic New Zealand only Tupperware products, I guess Trade Me is the place to go for them. Definitely. Uh, also iconic and long lasting are Chevrolet Impalas. There is a 1964 Impala. It looks pimped as on Trade Me at the moment. It looks so low to the ground. I don't know whether that would be a comfortable ride, but it'd certainly be a cool one. I tell you what, you would not want to be going over any bumps or any streets with sharp corners. Like a, a car like this in Wellington would be a nightmare. But yes, a gold 1964 Chevrolet Impala is up for sale. And this is an incredible vehicle because the hydraulics on this car look like the car actually should belong in the movie straight out of Compton. It is sleek gold. It's actually complete with custom engraving on all the trims and I think we can safely say it is chrome galore. Now, the asking price on this vehicle is $150,000 and it's already had 13,000 views, so lots of interest on this particularly unique car and I have to say the photography that they've done on it is top notch. I have to take my hat off to the seller because this is how you sell a vehicle it's just an incredible it's an incredible car that you know i think the interior has been redone it's got everything new newly painted and everything so it's in really really good condition and is also award-winning so new zealand low rider of the year 2018 2019 and 2021 so a very cool award-winning vehicle to check out on site at the moment yeah channel you're in a pimp for 150k so that's um yeah beautiful car beautiful car for a certain type of uh, person uh, also for a certain type of person is 103 St Stephen's Ave in Parnell and if you think you've seen this house before you may well have as Prime Minister ex-Prime Minister John Key this was his place 
this was his place and you know it is a prestigious address but prestigious addresses like this come with a uh, we could say prestigious price tag because the rv on this is 22 million dollars so Obviously, if you're looking at a $22 million property, it's pretty jaw-dropping. We're talking seven bedrooms, six bathrooms, five-metre high ceilings, two studies and a meeting room, a home theatre and even a wine cellar. So this has every single bell and whistle. I don't know why you would ever actually need to leave this home. I don't think you'd need to leave the property at all. Of course, it has a large swimming pool and a spa and an outdoor fire all of the things that you could potentially want in a property if you have $22 million to spend, that is. And of course, you know, being Sir John Key's former residence, there have been thousands and thousands of Kiwis flocking to the site to check out where he lived. So we've already seen 46,000 views and this property was only listed on Thursday. So a very, a very interesting property here that Kiwis are really keen to check out. It doesn't look like there's any open homes unfortunately if you were hoping to kind of wander through but you can check out a whole lot of photos on site that was millie sylvester from trade me like sands through the hourglass so are the days of our lives it's the 31st of august it's um one of those uh today one of those happenings you know people go oh you remember where you were um, I actually do for this one. I do remember it. Uh, and of course, it was uh, the day, yeah, Diana, Princess of Wales, died in the car crash in the road tunnel in Paris. Um, yes, I think we remember that one. 1997 uh, was the year that that happened. Let's have a look at some birthdays. Uh, the first three of them are pretty rugby heavy, actually. Karen Crowley is 61 years old today. A player that I just thought was so cool when I was in high school. I was like, he is awesome. Frenchman Serge Blanco. Yeah, cut a figure that man did. And also, I think what probably my first favourite All Black rugby hero was you did uh, when I was a youngster at the time, Grant Batty. I loved Grant Batty. Grant Batty is seventy-one years old today. Happy birthday to Grant Batty. He was born in Greymouth. He when he played, he was sixty-five kilograms. And I thought, I wonder how that compares now. I did a, a little Google, and Caleb Clark, who currently wears the same jersey. Remember Grant Batty was 65 kilos. Caleb Clark is 107. Uh, they're quite a bit bigger nowadays. Uh, Richard Gere turned 73 today. So again, as I do, I fell into a little uh, study hole there. Didn't realise his middle name was Tiffany. Uh, also didn't uh, realise that he attended the University of um, Massachusetts Amherst on a gymnastics scholarship. And he majored in philosophy, and after two years he left, didn't graduate, but he's gone on to do amazing, amazing things uh, outside of his um, acting as well. And in this day... In 1966, the Harrier jump jet made its first flight, and I'd just like your help, audience, 2101. Did one of those come here in the 1980s, and they did like a little practice flight, or am I just imagining things that were on TV? 2101, let me know if you remember that. Uh, A 1966 Harrier jump jet, and we all went, oh, foo, as it took off straight away. And that's uh, the happenings on this day on the 31st of August. What you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. 
And it's Giles Beckford, uh, who's all up in your business this morning. Kia ora, sir. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Nathan Moreno. Okay, so tell me this. Uh, that I like this. What sort of investor are you, Cool Cat or Alley Cat? Oh, yes. In fact, there's a whole range of cats uh, or type <laughs> of cat investors you can be. It's something dreamed up. It's a marketing sort of plan uh, by an investment uh, f- fund uh, called tiger trade but they you know with a, a hint of seriousness about it they're saying there are different types of people who go investing uh, and they have different approaches and so they've uh, put them into cat families now there's the curious cat which is the person keen to dip their paw into a share market get started there are copycats who uh, invest with caution they support each other to find out more there are cool cats, calm, collected, and up to speed with everything that's happening. Top cats, they're the experienced investors who take charge of their portfolio. There are hell cats, who are the pedantic investors who lap up everything that's going and all the numbers that they can find. There are Cheshire cats, who just enjoy staying updated and checking their portfolio, which in the current environment perhaps isn't a good thing to spend too much time on. And there are alley cats, who are glued to their phones, uh, and the attraction to the next big thing sees them. They'll bid on anything, so they're the ones more likely to go chasing cryptocurrencies or the like. So, you know, just think about yourself and your habits, your approach to money, uh, and you might find yourself there a category of investing cat that you are. Category, I like. I see what you did there. Oh, boom, boom. I was thinking about that as, as you were talking about those, and in my head, I thought this reminds me of: has someone gone and found Edward de Bono's, uh, you know, theory on on the hats? Remember that one with there? I forget what they were. Now I remember we, we had to go to a, a staff meeting on those once, and we all left quite boggled by it. But you know, the, <laughs> you, right. are you a blue hat of thinking and a yellow hat of reasoning or whatever it was? It almost seems a, a little like that, doesn't it, Giles? It does. It does a wee bit. And I mean, look, I think it's it's a ploy to attract people to. Uh, this business, but you know, I mean, there are elements of truth. You know, these you know point to various character to traits that we have. Um, you know, are you cautious? Are you adventurous? Mm. You know, are you going to do all your homework and sit there and pour over the numbers, or are you just going to go, oh, I saw it on Reddit and I saw it on social media, so it must be a good thing to invest in. You know, so yeah. You know, so from that point of view, yeah, you know, there's a real nub of uh, truth to it. Yeah, uh, but of course, with the latest tax that is being proposed on investment funds, that's been quietly slipped in by the government yesterday. Um, you know, it may be that you need to, uh, I don't know, um, spy cats. I think might be the other one that the government's sort of doing. You know, sort of just shifted this new tax in on or proposed tax in on Kiwi Saver investments, and uh, that one I think will have a lot of. Uh, it, it will run. You know, it's going to attract a lot of opposition, and I think the government's going to have a hard time selling that one. Yeah, just be careful with your investor cats too, because don't touch the tummy. They'll they'll buy your hand. Thank <laughs> you very much, Giles Beckford. There, and you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at ten to seven. So let's go see uh, what your New Zealand dollar will buy you today. It buys you sixty one point three four US cents, eighty nine point four four Australian cents, sixty one point six five euro cents, fifty two point six six British pence, four point two four yuan, eighty five point one four Japanese yen, and 2,710.02 Colombian 
pesos. It is 25 to 6 if you're listening to us live here at First Up on RNZ National. Of course, it's whatever time it is if you are listening to us on the podcast, First Up the podcast. Well, a network of over a thousand health professionals has released a set of guidelines to try and achieve consistency across the country for how skin cancer is treated. With more than 350 New Zealanders losing their life to melanoma every year, Melnet saw an urgent need to come up with a guide for the diagnosis and treatment of melanoma. And it sets out a minimum uh, minimum standard of care that patients should receive and also what high-quality care should look like. I spoke with Dr Chris Boberg, uh, who's a GP with a special interest in the early detection and management of skin cancer, and started by asking him to explain just what Melnet is. Melnet's an organisation, a network of health professionals who are committed to reducing the incidence and impact of melanoma in New Zealand. It was established in 2008. Why was it necessary to establish it? Melanoma was becoming a massive problem in the late 90s. We could see from the sun damage times and the elderly were getting more and more skin cancers and melanomas. And we could see there was a need, there's a call to action really, and uh, the group of us got together and it grew into a, uh, quite a big organisation over the last 12 years with over a thousand members. Wow. So yeah. you, you, you've all got together to do this. I mean, fallen to you and your colleagues to come up with the guidelines. But shouldn't the Ministry Absolutely. of Health have created it? Yeah, well, the Ministry of Health in 2012 got in behind the tumour stream uh, work, which we adopted, and we uh, did an emergency, and so they were they were helpful during that period of time, but it really fell to us to do this. We're the key stakeholders. We felt this, and we got on and did it. It took some time to do, and it was quite a traverse, but it's a wonderful thing. I know that, you know, previously we've had, I've heard of things like Mole Map, I think was one, where they would take a picture of your skin and, and try and map, you know, if anything else had come up in that. Is it like a case of if you want to handle your health the best to try and get a whole bunch of different ways to look at things? Is that, is that kind well, of how Mel Networks? You've just touched on a very interesting thing. Mel Met's a private company, of course, but what, what happens there is demoscopy of the skin, the stethoscope of the skin, which we are now putting a huge amount of intensity to training the young GPs in this, and we've got the College of GPs on board now, and we've made it, it's almost uh, mandatory for, for the young GPs in their training to learn demoscopy. It's an incredibly important skill. It's the stethoscope of the skin. Mm. So it's like the stethoscope for the heart, but it's actually visual stethoscope. So it does take some learning to do, and you there are many, uh, one, quite a few programs that we use to capture the images and to track things that are changing. So we're trying to find melanoma very early. It's all about early detection. And with this tool in the hands of the of the GPs at the front line and uh, skin cancer doctors like myself, uh, we can find melanoma before it invades and it's totally survivable. If you're someone that perhaps lives by themselves and you haven't got someone to go, hey, you know when you take your shirt off, you've got a little mole on your back, you want to have a look, are there some other symptoms that you might feel or might be able to detect if it's perhaps, you know what I mean, something that you yes, can't see yes, straight away? Yes, absolutely. I think you've got to look at risk, and risk comes after the age of 50 with fair skin, moles and freckles, lots of sunshine in the early days, and you're at risk. So you need a full skin checked by someone trained in demoscopy. And there are a lot of doctors now in New Zealand uh, who are really committed to this and doing it really well. So that's what you need to do. You need to go along, get a full skin check with demoscopy and have your risk, uh, your skin risk assessed. So if you're younger than 50 and you've got lots and lots of moles, it's a good idea to have a, a risk assessment straight up.
Do you remember when the uh, back in the you know the old slip slop slap ad appeared yeah. on TV, which was a, I mean yeah. a, a great thing. Now. Great. And I yeah. see so many schools now they they make the kids wear hats out at the yeah. fields and and not even just a cap. It's got the flap on the back for the index yeah. and that. Tell me about I mean a bit of springtime hopefully coming in the air soon as well, and then we head into summer. Are our sunscreens up to it and the way that New Zealanders dress? Because you know what we're like. We're the classic. Yeah. No, nah, we'll be all right, mate. All right. <laughs> yes, well it's the net, and you know. Covering up with with clothes in the in the intense sun of the summer is a very good thing to do, and we really encourage that. It's cheaper than sunscreen, and it works very very well. The more you burn and blister and recurrently, the worse, the bigger the problem you're going to have. You're quite right about the schools; they've really adopted things, the seeking the shade programs, and the Cancer Society in New Zealand can take your hats off to them. They've done a lot of work to to get this going in Australia. Of course, they take it steps further. But you know, you talk about sunscreens, and sunscreens are very important, and they just passed a bill now to to make sure that our sunscreens are totally up to it and of course uh, most of them are you've just got to check carefully when you buy them but you, you get your sunscreens from the pharmacy or your skin cancer doctor GP, they're probably going to be the ones that, that, are, that are valid and work well and you do need to use them and you need to put them on every two hours and wow. you go for SPF 50, uh, you don't muck around You get it's got, it's got a sunblock in it as well and that works the best and every two hours you sweat in the summer, you go swimming, you put it, whatever you buy make sure it's valid and put it on every two Hours. You mentioned before about how fair skin, you know, yes. something that you have to look out for as well. What about anyone with like Polynesian genes or any yes. other sorts of genes? Yeah. Absolutely, superb question. A melanoma doesn't discriminate between age, gender, or ethnicity. Okay. As you have darker skin, you have a little bit more protection, but you can still, and you still do, get melanoma, and it's, it's it affects everybody. We have the same number of pigment cells, everybody, depending on our, no matter what our skin type is. So it doesn't discriminate. That's Dr. Chris Boberg. Heading towards six o'clock, Nathan Rarity with first up here in RNZ National. It's about twenty-two. Still to come, we're going to hear from a New Zealand charity worker on the ground in Ukraine and also across to Pakistan uh, for the latest on the flooding there. The professionals of Morning Report are here after six with a quick preview of what's happening on the show today. It's Corin Dan. Kia ora, sir. Arthur Maria, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Uh, we will look at the issue of midwives uh, taking the Ministry of Health to court, saying they're fed up with broken promises for pay and support. We'll talk to the Minister. Uh, also, Nationals, op- uh, the Opposition spokesperson, Shane Ritty, so Andrew Little, Shane Ritty, and the midwives as well. So we'll get right on top of that issue. Uh, we'll look at the issue of uh, gun, uh, gun violence uh, across the country uh, in Auckland uh, in particular with uh, rising rates in recent years according to latest uh, data released to RNZ and the tax issue uh, this is the GST on fees for managed funds in KiwiSaver. Government wants to level the playing field but it may mean that uh, it gets more revenue in GST so uh, that's an interesting one which has sparked a little bit of controversy. We'll speak to Christopher Luxon Nationals uh, leader about that issue and others in his weekly chat as well. Cool. Thank you uh, very much. Look, Pakistan's government says the early estimates of the flood devastation are to the tune of at least $16 billion. One third of the country has been completely submerged by the historic deluge. Roads, homes and crops have been washed away, killing more than a thousand people. I asked journalist Omar Karashi, who was in Karachi, uh, for the stories that he's been hearing from flooded areas. Uh, yeah, it's like the worst flooding uh, Pakistan has seen uh, ever in its uh 75-year history, uh, two of the provinces, which also happen to be financially not so well-off, and their areas have been hit badly. 
you've got uh, five to six times as much rain as uh, falling more than the normal and you've got uh, you know around 33 million people have been rendered homeless uh, and have been affected by the uh, uh, the flood and are without a roof and uh, without shelter so there's a massive uh, you know effort needed for rehabilitation of victims to build their homes rebuild their lives and um, it's uh, it's a pretty bad scene out there yeah i mean omar you know you, you mentioned the homes and of course we know about roading and and other things i'm just thinking you know this hasn't been an easy couple of years for the entire planet you know recently now they get hit with this what's the general sentiment of of the the public who've been affected by this uh, yeah i mean i think the people who have been affected by it right now trying to get their lives back in order uh, i forgot to mention that in a lot of places the water hasn't receded yet so you know i mean it's i mean that is going to take some time as well and uh, yeah uh, there's a lot of talk it's difficult to say because when it rains so much and there's so much flooding uh, you know i mean you've seen it in europe and all over the world as well there's a lot if there's a lot of rain there'll be uh, everything will be flooded but here the difference is people have you know the homes have been washed away so they need to re- rebuild their homes and everything and i think right now it hasn't hit them but it will hit them and uh, there is going to be a lot of anger at successive governments for not doing enough to build better infrastructure uh, but again uh, like i said the areas affected some of the most uh, poorest in the country which is anyways a low income country so you can imagine how uh, bad the situations there are going to be I mean, you, you mentioned there the, the low income of it, and of course fundraising becomes, uh, you know, something yeah. which is needed. And I understand yes. a, a person yes. that we're familiar with here in New Zealand, uh, the, the former leader of the, yeah. the opposition there and, and cricketer Imran Khan, um, uh, ran, yeah, yeah. ran yeah. a telethon. Can you tell us about that? How much was pledged and will it be enough? Yeah, he's uh, he ran a telethon last night, uh, and according to his party, they have uh, they've got pledges of around... 5 billion rupees uh, which would be roughly around 22 23 million dollars the government estimates that they need upwards of 100 billion rupees so that's a welcome uh, sign but that's not going to be enough it's just 5% of what the government says is needed and those are pledges so it remains to be seen how much of that actually makes it, it makes it way to pakistan on the issue of fundraising the un has also uh, launched an appeal today actually with the pakistan government and then you've got the us government and the uk government and the eu all pledging as well i think upwards of 100 million dollars already have been pledged uh, you know you mentioned that the floods haven't receded in a lot of the areas so no. i guess it's yeah. hard to know accurately right yeah. now but do you have any idea yeah. about how long a recovery may take oh, well i mean the recovery uh, for people like to be back on their feet and earning a livelihood could take few years in some of these cases you might see people moving permanently from their village to the city uh, so in karachi which is the largest city in pakistan with with upwards of 20 million people you've got reports that 50000 people have already come in who have lost their homes they might have relatives here or they're coming in to look for jobs and you know uh, the government has set up camps so it's going to take at least 2 3 years probably longer for this whole rehabilitation because it's like devastation on a massive scale. It's uh, Omar Karashi there in Pakistan. It is 11 minutes to 6 here at First Up on RNZ National. The New Zealand charity KiwiCare is working in Ukraine to help locals and they're after volunteers to help them. 
Tenby Powell, the former mayor of Tauranga, is in the war zone. He's the founder of the charity, which is trying to help bring vital supplies to the people of Ukraine. His appeal comes less than a week after New Zealand Army Corporal Dominic Abelin was killed in combat in Russian-held territory while he was there on unpaid leave. I asked Mr Powell, a former soldier himself, where volunteers will be based. At this stage, I'm in the final stages of negotiating what will be effectively a forward operating base in Ukraine. I can't openly talk where it is exactly for obvious reasons, but uh, security is key and uh, something that's sustainable because it's very clear to me now that we need at least a one-year operation and most likely two years because this is clearly not going away in a hurry, this war. Are you able to say uh, what sort of work they would be you know they'd be doing absolutely it's very much a two-stage operation that and this is what the majority of people are doing which is humanitarian aid into ukraine mostly from poland via other western european countries and the united states and the uk and they can go anywhere from western ukraine where a lot of refugees are also feeding hospitals with medical equipment and I mean very expensive medical equipment and medical supplies. And then, of course, well down into the Donbass. And just this is because it's very current. Winter underwear is the, is the theme, you know. Uh, clearly the winter isn't here yet, but it is coming. And the need for both civilians that remain in the Donbass area, those that refuse to leave, uh, and also for others that are down there supporting the war effort. They need winter clothing of various sorts. So we're starting to, to ramp up on the supply of that right now. The volunteers, do, would you hope that they would be experienced or is it, you know, could, could someone that's a rookie do this? There are a lot of rookies here, which is why I've asked people with operational experience. So people that understand an uncomfortable environment and are comfortable in that environment. And at the same time, they don't take stupid risks. They've got cool heads. They understand the dynamics the, the ever-changing dynamics of a war of this sort and they're comfortable to get in and deliver that aid and then, you know, potentially get out. And we, well, we, we, we'll be staying there for a while in those areas, of course. Uh, and then, uh, the second phase of this is, is evacuation. So vans that become empty because they've delivered the humanitarian aid are then obviously available for evacuations of people from those areas. And my feeling is that this is going to increase. The need for evacuation will increase across time and most particularly during the winter. Tenby, you know, you've got a learned eye in this sort of situation. Uh, I can hear the urgency in your voice to do with this and from what you've seen. So are you looking at ex-service personnel to, to come and do this, perhaps police or medical staff? That's exactly what my post, my social media post said. Ex-military, ex-police, ex-ambulance and fire service, registered nurses and doctors, people that have an ability to, to operate and have operated in an environment which is, you know, EG is not really the word so much, but they just, it's, I just come back to that one point that they are comfortable in an uncomfortable environment. Yeah. And look, I've had a lot of applicants already previously from New Zealand police and New Zealand registered nurses, which is fantastic. And I've gone to some length in my social media post to say that we don't, we being Kiwi Care, does not need a medical capability per se. Mm. But I do know, having met directors of hospitals and head nurses of hospitals, they most certainly need support.
You know, New Zealanders have been showing on-the-ground support in various ways. There's, uh, you know, yourself there with Kiwi Care, and we've also, of course, uh, saw the news that we'd lost one of our soldiers there who'd uh, laid down his life to help Ukraine. And can you just help me with this? Because what sort of what is the mindset that makes Defence Force personnel want to go into a war zone? What what is it that compels them to get in there? Well, look, I, obviously, I can't talk about Dominic, and my my hope is that his body has recovered through diplomatic channels now, which is what it's going to need sooner rather than later. But, uh, and I, I don't want to be glib about this, but, you know, servicemen and Army, Navy, Air Force are trained for this. And, you know, there's an environment now which where New Zealand hasn't deployed after deploying everywhere for a number of years. And this new group of soldiers, and they are magnificently trained and magnificent young men and women, feel that they can make an effort here to support the Ukrainians in what is very much a war of colonialism and now a fight for, for freedom and democracy. Yeah, so it's, it's that feeling of there's people that need help, I know how to help, I'm going to go and help them. Is, is, is that like a Absol- natural thought? Absolutely. Look, absolutely. I mean, New Zealand soldiers and sailors and, and those in the Air Force are highly trained at a very, very high level. You know, we don't have a big defence force, but we've got a highly trained and very capable defence force. And I think, like many of us, we're incensed with this war. You know, it's a war of colonialism. It's a war where we're fighting for freedom and democracy or helping the Ukrainians do that to preserve their integrity as a sovereign state. And I think those that have have come here have come with with absolutely the right attitude. You know, we're seeing the the wanton death of women and children, civilians, all of them. The amount of civilian deaths here that I don't think either hasn't been reported at all or it's been grossly underreported is just, you know, mind-boggling. How long do you expect to be there? Well, uh, I think, as I said, I came here originally thinking that, you know, we might be able to make a bit of an impact and just make a contribution for a few months. That changed very quickly when I observed what was happening on the ground. And I'm, I'm going to tell you why in a second, Nathan, <laughs> to an operation standing up Kiwi Care, having an operational capability for one year. That, in my mind, now has grown to two years. There's nothing cheap about this but I'm determined to raise funds to have an operation for two years because it's needed. Now, the point I wanted to make here is that this is somewhat bizarrely becoming a a war where support is given by a man and a woman in a van, and the man in the van thing has become a catch cry. The UN aren't here, not obviously here, or all the big aid agencies that you can think of, UNICEF, Red Cross, even those that protect animals. And there are so many animals in great need here where people have had to abandon their animals because they just had to evacuate themselves. We don't know where they are. And you very rarely see any sign of major agencies south or east of Kiev, which is just bizarre in my mind. And so it's come down to an international network of people who have bought their own vans, either self-funded or fundraised, and we are the ones that are taking the humanitarian aid forward into those areas that uh, where Ukrainians most need it. And this man in the van catch cry is becoming an absolute theme of this war, as bizarre as it is. So, you know, we, we've got many listeners there who, who would want to help. That They aren't in a position to come and help. So if you can't be a volunteer, where and how can we help with something like donations? Well, we've got a Give a Little page running under Kiwi Care. Care with a K, stand, it's an acronym, 
standing for Kiwi Aid and Refugee Evacuation. We would love people to donate to KiwiCare, and I'm sharing some of that around. There's other New Zealanders that need help. One of the New Zealanders who has operated in the Donbass for weeks and weeks, months really, lost his car to artillery fire. He needs another car, and he needs one desperately. And because the winter is coming, he needs a 4x4, something that's pretty robust. And you know, the vehicles that I've got really are standoff vehicles where they might be 20 kilometres north of the west of that area. You know, that vehicle will then go down and grab these people, and then we'll take them into the comfort of a, of a van and, and give them the long haul on the way back. So, you know, we, when I say we need one, we need three or four of these vehicles, actually, Nathan. And this is why I know that the operating costs are going to be at least $250,000 a year just for vehicles, running costs, and, and all that stuff. And two years, we can, we can say this is a half a million dollar gig. So we need a lot of help. That's KiwiCare's Tenby Powell. In a response, a government spokesperson said the travel advisory is do not travel to Ukraine. They say that New Zealanders go and encounter issues. Uh, the ability to support them is incredibly limited. Uh, your feedback for this morning, thank you very much for today. So yes, apparently the Hawker Harrier jet did take off in New Zealand. So good, I wasn't imagining weird things. Paul from Pukanui said the best way to uh, avoid a magpie attack is put a, a, picture, a photo of your face on the back of your head. Uh, Nolene's also been swooped on by... Magpie. Oh, poor you. Uh, this is interesting. Thank you very much. Lots of feedback about Grant Batty. I'll try and get to this. Alice says, Kia ora, Grant Batty was my favourite. I was a girl growing up in Dunedin. My bedroom was plastered in newspaper photos of him, including his wedding photo uh, where I drew glasses and a moustache on his wife in Byra. I'll never forget walking home from the bus after school one Friday and my mum had to tell me he'd retired devastated. Absolutely devastated I was. I've had to squish that one in a bit. Have a look on the Facebook page for all of it. It's a beautiful message. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corinne. From all of us here at First Up, have a wonderful day. We're back in your ears, our uh, Paul.